Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 27. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you so much, Father, for another day to experience life with you, just like we talked about on Easter. You've come to give life and life abundantly. You've given us life. And we don't just put our confidence in the fact that we will live eternally, eternal life, but, but genuine, true life right now. God, we ask that you would teach us in your word today. We ask that you would instruct us, Lord. We, we ask that you would speak to the issues of our heart that need speaking to. And we ask for a heart that is soft and fertile to receive the seeds that you have for us so that we can produce fruit for you, fruit for your kingdom, fruit for your glory, so that people can see you in our lives individually and corporately as a church. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So right before we took a break, we were going to be doing this five-week study on discipleship. So this one is a little bit longer, okay? We've, we've done two-week studies, three-week studies. This one is going to be a five-week study, and Jesus is going to give a really intensive course on what discipleship looks like. In fact, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, up until now, Jesus has always been focused on the people. And the disciples were involved a little bit, but not as much as they're going to be in this next section. Also, this is a real splitting point of the gospel. There's a whole different tone that comes in in the second half of the gospel of Mark. Some things that we see differently in the second half than the first. The first half, Jesus was traveling extensively and going back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. You guys remember? Multiple times they're going, they get in storms, the disciples are freaking out. The second half, after Peter's confession, which we're going to look at today, he sets himself on a determined path to Jerusalem. He's not traveling around. He's not going and talking to people anymore. He's going to Jerusalem intentionally. The first half, Jesus teaches the masses. The second half, starting with what we're going to look at today, he intentionally teaches his disciples The first half, Jesus tells people to keep quiet about who he is. The second half, we see one of the last times that he says it in our study today. And then it's openly proclaimed and declared that he is the Messiah. And Jesus is now focused on the capital, Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and start verse 27. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. This is the last time that Jesus will instruct them specifically not to reveal who he is. But notice something, the first element, the first level, the first part of discipleship is what? Confession. And Jesus asks them, who do men say that I am? What does the world think about me? What would the world say about Jesus today? If you said, who do you think Jesus is? How would they respond? 
Well, it depends on who they were, but he was a, he was a good teacher. He was a nice guy that lived a long time ago. But what's more important than what the world thinks or what the world says about Jesus is who we say. Who do you say that Jesus is? We're going to look at four points of discipleship. The very beginning stages, because this is what Jesus is doing, taking them this next five weeks in our studies. We're going to look at four things that is today that are important for us to realize as disciples of Jesus Christ. Point number one. There has to be a confession in his Messiahship, right? There has to be a confession of his Messiahship. Uh, Romans chapter 10, 9, you guys know, if you confess with your heart, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of the requirements that Paul makes for being a disciple of Jesus Christ in the early church is confession. You have to say it. When is the last time that I confess to somebody that Jesus is Lord? Uh, Sometimes it's hard. People already think I'm weird, you know? I'm compounding the problem. But by God's grace, when I couple what he's done in my life with what he's doing in my life, and I share and confess that to others, it gives people an opportunity to see who I say Jesus is, which is true and the reality. So the first is confession. I'm going to run through all four of these so you guys can write them down now if you're taking notes. You can also uh, note them as we get to them in the text. Number one is confess. Number two is believe. Number three is submit. And number four is reveal. Those are the four things that we see entry-level discipleship in Jesus Christ. Confession, believe, submission, and revelation. And again, we'll go through those as we get through the text. But notice something. They had different opinions about who Jesus was. The people around them. And then when he says, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And then we go into verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, we have to remember that this comes right next to each other, right? There was first the confession, but the actions didn't uh, align with the confession. I believe that there's people who can confess and say, hey, Jesus is Lord, but do their actions actually line up with what they're saying? What was Peter saying to Jesus? I have specific intentions for you, Jesus. We have expectations of you, Jesus. This is what you're meant to be as the Messiah. This is what that looks like. And dying will not fulfill that for me or us. How many times do we do that about Jesus? Jesus, this is who I say that you are. This is what I need from you. This is what the church is supposed to look like, Jesus. We don't let sinners in the church. 
We dress nice and we talk about holy things. Jesus says that's not what the church looks like. The church is full of people who are broken. The church is full of people who have need. The church is full of people who need healing. We're not, uh, we're not saints in the sense that we don't do anything wrong. We're a hospital. And if you guys don't need help, I do. So pray for me. Every day, as we walk with the Lord, it's a process. Peter's confession of Jesus the Christ allowed him to be in a place, a better place, I believe, for Jesus to rebuke him when he, when he talked to him. There's, there's the difference between us focusing on what we know God's will is and us focusing on our own will. We're going to talk a little bit about that because Jesus does. But when we think about our own will, what do you think about? I, I have desires. I have wants. I have things that I know that, that I could do that I probably shouldn't. Some are convictions. If they're sin, I definitely don't want to do them. But now Peter has an inside look into what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not just confession. It's number two. It's believing. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. It's believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter had the confession down. He rejected the death and resurrection. Isn't that what Jesus just said? And the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. That's part of the gospel. Jesus says you have to believe that. You can't only confess, you have to confess, and you have to believe it. Number two, verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what should a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is one of those portions of Scripture that are a little bit more difficult why do we have to open up a five-week series on discipleship with denial? We're not talking about denying Jesus. We're not talking about denying something that's bad because we think we are inherently good. I watched this argument between a, a, an apologist and an atheist student at a university and this atheist student is arguing with this man who's an, who's an apologist, trying to persuade him that man is inherently good. Listen, I want to encourage you guys, okay? I know the stuff on TV is crazy. You see crazy stuff on TV. If you have the opportunity, if God would give you the opportunity to bless you to go on a mission trip or go to different parts of the world, I would really encourage you to go. 
it would really open up what we call your worldview and see what it's like in other places. It's hard. The world is full of war and struggle and torment. It's sin. It's what sin has done to our world. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I, I, I don't know how to express this without coming off like a jerk, so I'll just say it. Hopefully you guys will understand. I'm really disappointed at what pop culture has done with the cross. You've got crosses all over everything. I, and I, I'm, not, look, I'm not trying to offend anybody here, you know, but I see clothes, you know, like a shirt with crosses all over it. And there's even this brand, I don't know what it's called, but they do upside down crosses all over it. And I think that they've taken away by doing that, by, by saturating society with it, they've taken away from the meaningfulness of the cross. They've taken away from the holiness from how it's different, from, from what it's supposed to be. And some degree or another, I, I believe that it's become uh, idolatry. There's a symbol that's supposed to mean something that doesn't mean that anymore. People look at it as something else, something different. The cross is meant to be something special. And when Jesus said to his disciples, you have to deny yourself pick up your cross and follow me, they knew what the cross represented. The cross represented a torturous, agonizing death. Do people think about that nowadays? A cross is an instrument of torture? What if I wore a little necklace with somebody getting waterboarded? Would people think that's cool? Well, you can't see his face because there's a cloth over it. Let me explain the process to you. But he'll tell you what you want to know. No, it was an instrument of torture. It was something that was meant to kill the flesh. Jesus is setting up something here that he wants to make very clear to his disciples. He wants them to know that if they want to follow him, they're going to have to submit to him, which is number three, and go down the same path that he went down. Now, I know right off the bat, as we're talking about it, that sounds terrible. It sounds miserable. But as we read on, we see a little bit more what Jesus is talking about. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross. Now, this next thing, he gives four little examples in this little thing that we read. This next one explains what he's saying in that first one a little bit better. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. That's the second one. You know what's interesting? That word life. We've been talking about life a lot lately, right? You know what that, that word life in the Greek is? Psyche. It's not something like your, your physical life. Jesus isn't saying that you have to die physically to yourself. He's saying that, that your psyche, who you are, what you represent, your personality has to die. The me mentality is what it is. And believe me, I don't know if you can talk to anybody else who knows the me mentality better than me. Because I love me. 
That's why we're instructed in the Bible to, to, to love our wives like we love our own selves. The me mentality is what is my mission? What is my prerogative? What do I want? What makes me happy? And Jesus says, those are the things that you have to die to. Because Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, look what he got in exchange for dying to who he was. He got to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He gloriously demonstrated who the Father is. If there's one word that that I could uh, say about my wife and as it, how it's connected to her being a Christian, she's one of the most selfless people I've ever met. God is, is so selfless. He's so selfless. He always thinks about us before himself. He always thinks about others. God is always about others. And then when you look at people's lives, who their focus is only themselves, who all they want is so that they're happy and they can't you know, keep a marriage together, they can't keep a family together, and they don't care anymore. They just get to the point where they give up. It doesn't matter as long as I'm happy. I was reading an article one time of this nurse who asked people as they were dying on their deathbeds, she asked them, uh, what would you do differently in life? And I was sad to read that one of the responses is, uh, I wish that I would have lived life a little more for me. That's backwards. I I think that maybe those people didn't realize that maybe they lived themselves, they lived too much for themselves. Because those kind of words are not spoken in joy and laughter. I wish I would have lived more for me. Woo! No, it's, I, would, I wish I would have lived more for me. It's that me mentality coming back again. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to submit yourself to the fact that I want to show the world who I am through you. I want to show the world who I am through you. I want you to be a good representation of who I am. And if I want to do that, you have to stop living for yourself. Like I said, this is something that I I had to process and work through as a Christian. Because I thought dying to myself meant being more like somebody who was holy. So I'd see these pastors or these holy people that did things right and did things good, and I wanted to be more like them. There were certain things that I couldn't say or couldn't do. I couldn't have my own type of personality. I had to stuff down who I was. You guys know who I am? I'm a weird, kind of funny, sometimes confusing person. It's just who I am. I've come to learn to embrace that and be like, it's who I am. It's who I am. But God, he takes that and he makes something good from it. He says, let me work with that. What I die to is the the false desires that my flesh tells me that I have. Those aren't real. Those are the me mentality. So again, I can still be who I am, but I'm also submitted to God in a way that he's able to use me and that when people see me or interact with me, they're not getting just my personality. They're getting the Lord. 
I, I hope, I pray, I want them to get the Lord. So number one, confession. Number two, believing. Number three, submission. Submission doesn't mean that you, can, you completely lose your, your, who you are. Psyche also speaks of the soul of a person. It's the personality, the soul of a person. It's the intentions of somebody. Does that make sense? For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit if a man would it, it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's a very good question that many people have asked. We have a hunger, we have a desire, especially as Americans, you know, we 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 consume, we're consumption oriented people. We want more, we want more, we want it bigger, bigger, we want it better. Did you see that that uh, McDonald's came out with a new Big Mac? What is it called? Do you guys know? What? Grand Mac. Because big isn't big enough anymore, you know? So it's actually bigger than the Big Mac, but they realize that some people don't want a grand Big Mac or whatever, you know? So they made a smaller version of the Big Mac as well, you know? Let's accommodate everybody. What do you feel like, a big Big Mac or a tiny Big Mac? I don't know. The point, uh, again, is, is as our society being so consumer-driven and, and more, and that's how the world is really generally, are we going in a direction where we just want more out of life or are we going in the direction where we're looking at the things that have value in our life and pouring into those things? What has value? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Literally, there's people who are so rich right now that it's like that they own the entire world. You guys ever heard of some of those conspiracy theories? I'm not even going to say the name, but there's this one family who owns everything. Nope, nope. They own the UN. They own the United States. They own the, all the banks. They own everything. And if you look, it's all linked back to them. What does it profit them? What does it profit them if they do own the whole world? What does it profit them if at the end of their life, if they're not submitted, if they've not confessed, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, what does it benefit them? It benefits them in no way. You know what it means? It means somebody else is going to have that stuff later. Somebody else. Maybe even somebody that they don't like. But you know what? They're not going to know because they're dead. What does it profit? So we're talking in, the, in terms of, in the sense of eternity. Eternity now. And Jesus is making this very clear to the disciples. This is the pattern by which I want you, 12 apostles, to go out and make disciples. Let's let it be made clear. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen, if a man can gain, this is two different questions. This is the third. What can a man gain in exchange for his soul? Listen, if somebody can own the whole world and that's not enough, go ahead and pick one thing. What's the most important thing in the world that you want? Is that worth your own soul? People say they sold their soul for this or they sold their soul for that. It's never worth it. Again, it's temporary. Just think in terms of investments. 
Are you going to invest in something that you know is going to give you returns and blessings far into the future? Or are you just going to keep flushing your money down the toilet, buying grand Big Macs? I hope not. Listen, the past two weeks have been very difficult for me. You know why? Because I have eaten more salad in the last two weeks than I ever have in my entire life. I was preparing for this study. I know all about denial, self-denial now. And I can tell you, I had no, I never had any, I didn't ever in a day in my life wake up and say, you know, I feel like a salad today. I'm going to have two salads. I'm going to have a salad for lunch and a salad for dinner. And I'm going to get grilled chicken on it because it's healthier for me. No, why am I doing that? Because I, I need to lose weight. You guys will be happy to know I lost 10 pounds in two weeks. It's going to keep going. It's all about denial, denying the flesh. Why? Because it benefits me in the long run. And what if I don't? What if all I do is shove my face with grand Big Macs? What happens? Listen, literally, what happens? My life gets shorter. It gets shorter. I'm investing in the here and now instead of the long And I know that it is a physical example, but it's true. How much more true do we need to take seriously the spiritual things? What would we give in exchange for our soul? Nothing. Jesus makes a very clear point. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, this is a little bit diff- more difficult. This is the fourth one. And it is, it is a, a sh- he says he's ashamed of me. If you guys are ashamed of me. How can this shame come about? What is this, uh, this shaming that he's talking about? He says, if you can't really take seriously the first three points I just made to you, then we're not really walking in the same direction. We're not in the same boat. If you want to keep living life for yourself, that's not who I am as the Messiah. If your focus is on the things that you can gain and possess in the world, that's not who I am as your Messiah. If there's one thing that you want to excel and be the best at, better than everybody else, so that you can have that ability and say it, that's not who I am as the Messiah. I'm selfless. I lay down my life for my friends. I lay down my life for others. And this is what the beginning of stages of what it looks like to be a disciple. We talked a a few weeks ago about discipleship. It was a couple months ago. It was also in Mark. Discipleship, we get the same word discipleship from discipline, discipline, discipleship. It's a recognizing that there's a discipline that needs to happen in order for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't just get to do whatever you want. There's a discipline involved. And he said to them, chapter 9, verse 1, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. 
So this is, you know, all that stuff was kind of tough to process a little bit. Jesus is saying, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. If you want to save your life, you better lose it. You know, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? But then he brings in at the end the promises, which is their inheritance in the kingdom of God. Big picture stuff. I got to eat a salad, but by the end of the summer, I'm going to be looking fresh like a salad. (laughs) Big picture stuff. So what does that mean? Many people have debated and argued about what Jesus actually meant. Critics say, oh, it didn't happen. He didn't show them. He did show them. In fact, we see in Scripture there's two places that he showed them the kingdom of God and a clue into where the second one is. The first one is in our text. We're going to read it right after this. The second one, we get a clue by reading his words again. I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Circle that. That's your clue as to the second time some of them saw the kingdom of God in power. Does anybody want to guess where that place is in Scripture? Anybody? Acts chapter 1, Jesus is giving his farewell address to his disciples. He says, wait in Jerusalem till you receive the promise of the Father that will come with power. Pentecost was the culmination and demonstration of the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth in power. And it, it, it started the, the beginning of the church. It revolutionized who they thought Jesus was. It gave them a launching pad to go from. It was powerful. But not all of them saw. Because he said, some of you will see, right? Right? So if he said, some of you will see, but they were all in Jerusalem at Pentecost, who was missing? Judas was missing. So they didn't all see. Because right after Judas denied Jesus, he threw the money back in the temple. He went and hung himself. So Jesus was speaking truthfully when he said, hey, some of you are going to see. And then in the story right after this, we see that even a smaller few get to see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, after six days, verse 2, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. I had the same problem, Pete. Don't worry. I don't know what to say, so I say something. They're like, what did you say? I'm like, I don't know. Let's just move on. Moving on. Sorry, Jesus. Sorry, Elijah. (laughs) Jesus' clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow. You know, scriptures sometimes have a difficult time expressing things that we just don't have any understand. Scripture doesn't have a difficult time. It gives the best that it can, right? 
But there's some things like Paul, when he says that he went to the third heaven, he says that there, he saw things that, in the original language, he says he saw things that would be illegal for him to try to speak. It's, it's not only is it, I can't say what I saw, the, the language that I'm constricted to, I cannot say. In fact, if I try to explain what I saw, somebody should arrest me and throw me in jail. Because that's what of an injustice I'm going to do to what it is. But he uses this example, exceedingly white like snow. And I like that because I like Alaska. I like watching shows. We're watching a show about this, you know. I, you guys know I like those, like, documentary things, you know. And, and snow's white. Do you know how white snow is? You know, everybody who goes snowing, 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 sledding, snowboard, snow, skiing, snowboarding is what I was thinking the whole time. But it's uh, people wear sunglasses. Why? Because it's so white. The sh- the sun reflects off of the snow, and it almost illuminates. It it glows. Jesus is 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 glowing. He's shining exceedingly white, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What is the significance of Elijah and Moses appearing to Jesus? Moses represents the giving and fullness of the law, the Old Testament law, which God said, if you live by this law, you will prosper. If you live by this law, you will be able to engage in a relationship with me. That's what he says to the nation of Israel. You will know me. I will lead you. I will care for you. Nobody can do anything to you if you obey the law. So there's Moses, the representation of the law. Then what was Elijah? Elijah was the representation of the prophets. He was the greatest prophet. So one written law, Moses, a spoken word, the spoken word of God, which is what the prophets did, and Jesus. This is the culmination of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God being revealed to these three men. Jesus is standing in between God's written law and God's spoken word, and he's fulfilling both. There's a time when there's a passing away of the old and the coming of the new, and the new covenant is rooted in Jesus Christ. Jesus. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid, and a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but Jesus with themselves. Another interesting note about, quickly before we move on, about uh, Elijah and Moses is these are two men's bodies that nobody knew what happened to them. Why didn't they know what happened to Elijah's body? Because he was taken up, right? He didn't die physically. They didn't have a funeral and bury him. He was taken up and his body wasn't to be found. Moses also, we see in Jude in the New Testament, that the devil wanted to argue with the archangel Michael about where the body of Moses was. 
And he says, even the archangel Michael didn't rebuke the devil directly. He said, the Lord rebuke you when they talked about those things. There's, it's the, the reason I bring it up and it's interesting is because of the element of the resurrection we believe as Christians. So if these men, we don't know where their bodies are, they're represented here. They do represent a testimony to a people, the nation of Israel. They do represent a testimony to the world that God used them and worked through them. And now we see Jesus filling both roles, fulfilling the law and speaking the word of God. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is a different restriction. This isn't a restriction like it was before about him not telling, them not telling other people that he was the Messiah. This was a restriction for these three to wait until after the resurrection because for the sake of understanding. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. <laughs> right? what is that? I don't even know what it means. What is rising from the dead? What does that look like? They're going to see it. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they, didn't, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and Moses. He fulfilled the law. He's also a representative of God in the way that Elijah was. Hardcore, eating locusts. No thanks, except chocolate covered. They're okay. Cricket, put anything in chocolate or fry it, and you can eat it. It's good. Trust me. But I say to you that Elijah has come, and they have done to him whatever they wish. Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist, how they did do to him whatever they wish. They killed him. He was the one that was coming to set up, to make way, to prepare the people for the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, is there now. And the process has started. So let's look at those four things again. I'm going to touch on the last one as we just read it when, I, when we come to it right now. Number one was what? Confess. Number two? Number three? Number four? Reveal. When we confess with our mouth, when we believe in our heart, when we submit ourselves, he reveals himself to us. That's exactly what happened through this story. They confessed, they believed, they submitted, and they saw Jesus transfigured before them. Again, I can't say this enough. If I said it every week, it, it may seem like too much, but it's not. Listen, if you seek the Lord, you'll find him. If you seek him, if you confess, if you believe, if you submit, he will reveal his glory to you. And that's something that as much as I want you guys to understand, that it's not a one-time thing, it's continual, I can never really explain to you what that looks like. 
I can say to you, this is how God revealed himself to me. And some of you would be like, well, that's really cool, Tim. And some of you would be like, cool, whatever. Maybe for you, but uh, I don't think that that's awesome. I, I don't want God to reveal himself to me like that. God will reveal himself to you the way that he knows you need to receive him. It's, it's, it's good. It's a blessing. So when we think about the gospel, when we think about, am I a disciple? I still have to ask myself, am I a disciple? Am I following the Lord? Am I still confessing? Am I still confessing? Yes. Am I still believing? Am I believing in spite of my circumstances? Am I believing in spite of who I think I am? Am I believing in spite of the condition that the world is in right now? Am I believing? Yes. Am I submitting? Yeah, I am, and it's good. And the fourth, is he revealing? He is. For you, are you confessing? Are you still confessing? Are you still believing? Are you still submitting? Is he still revealing? Because that's what he wants to do. And if you take any one of those out, doesn't mean that you're not a disciple or that you don't believe in Jesus. It just means that you're not fulfilling the kind of discipleship Jesus wants to have for you, which will prohibit him from really revealing himself fully to you. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for for teaching us, and we thank you that your word is, is pure, your word is holy, your word is good. We can trust it. We can depend on it. We, we know that when your word says that we need to deny ourselves, that it's true. And even when it makes us uncomfortable, there's things that we don't want to give up or there's things that we don't want to do. We know that when we do, we receive life. You set before us two ways, two paths, the path of life and the path of death. Allow us not to just confess Jesus is our Savior, but confess, believe, submit, so that we can receive what you have for us today, this week, and going into this season of our lives. Lord, bless your church. Encourage your church. Grow your church, Lord spiritually, so we can be like you. People can see you in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.